Well, again, good morning to all of you and all of you watching online. I know many people will check us out online. We do have an online church that if you're sick and you can't, can't be here or you're just, you found us online, you want to see what it's like, you can always go out online and see that. Good morning. My name's Tony and I am the lead pastor here at Gateway. Today I want to continue with you on this last message, with this last message of this series called 2020, Vision 2020. And uh, this was not a vision message for the church. That's coming. Uh, we're excited about what's happening in the next 12 to 18 months in our church. And we will be sharing with you uh, the picture uh, that God has painted for us and how we frame that. And we'll be sharing more about the vision of the church. This series was more about a vision for you. That you would grab a vision for your 2020 that would change you, transform you, that you would grow spiritually. And we've shared some things that you can do personally, practical things, to help you grow and to help make sure that 2020 is the best growth year of your life. So today, let me just start by asking you a question. What three words describe the last three months of your life? My worship team is probably, our worship team is probably laughing right now because I do this to them all the time. Uh, They come in, I say, give me one word. And we make fun of Tracy because if you know Tracy, she can't do it in one word. She makes up hyphenated words that don't exist. Um, But one word for each month that describes, I'm giving you three here. Three words that describe your last 90 days. If you were to boil it all down, what would those words be? Perhaps busy, tiring, overwhelming, exhausting, hectic, swamped, stop me now, swamped, full, crazy, draining. I've heard all of these out of my own mouth. (laughs) I've heard all of these from you and from myself. Maybe some of these words are on your list. I know that they're on mine. You know what words wouldn't make it to my list? Peaceful. Restful. Calm. Refreshing. Especially coming through the holidays and the busyness. And all of that, these are words that I don't say a lot. And I'm guessing if you got up here and shared the three words from your list, peaceful, restful, calm, and refreshing would not be on the list either. I've had moments of peacefulness. I've had maybe a couple of days of rest here and there. But over the course of 90 days, it's not exactly how I would sum up my calendar. There's just too much going on in life. I'm at a stage where there's just too much going on in my career, in my business, in my family, in everything else. Too many meetings, too many things on my to-do list. Too many things on my to-do list that aren't getting done. For rest and peace to rise to the top of my list. But why is that? 
Why? Why are we so busy? Why is there no peace? Why is there no rest? Why is it always busy, tiring, overwhelming, exhausting, hectic, swamped, crazy? Why doesn't rest and peace rise to the top of our calendar? Why don't we make these things a greater priority in our life? Well, I think it's because we've been fooled. We've been lied to. We've been caught up into a system that says this. Our productivity is more important than our rest and peace. Our productivity is more important than our rest and peace. No one wants to be lazy. No one wants to even appear lazy. No one wants to appear to be unproductive. We're wired this way, especially as Americans. If you don't believe me, look at the statistics. 85% of all men work more than 40 hours a week. 65% of all women work more than 40 hours a week. Americans love to work. We work. We're productive. We're the most productive people in the world. Listen to this. We work 137 hours per year more than the Japanese worker. We work more than 260 hours more than the British workers. And get this. These people must just be lazy. We work 490 hours a year more than the average Japanese or French worker. If you did 40 hours a week and a typical month payroll is 176 hours, that means the American worker works almost three months more than the average French worker in a year. Three months. Productivity per American worker has increased 400% since 1950. And you're saying, well, what does that mean? What do you mean by that? That means today, the average American worker only needs to work 11 hours a week to have the standard of living that people had in 1950. 11 hours. Sounds pretty good to me. You only need to work 11 hours to have the standard of living, the lifestyle that people had in 1950. That means that the standard of living should be four times higher. Let me just say, somebody's profiting from our productivity, but it's probably not the worker of an American worker. We work more hours. We get less vacation, less paid holidays than anyone in the world. The American worker is the most worked and productive worker in the world. Now this isn't necessarily a bad thing. Work is good. I shared with you about your calling and I said God created us to work. We should work. We should work hard. We should be productive. We should do things, good things with our lives. Many of us like our work. 
Some of us hate our work, but some of us like our work. We love our work. As a matter of fact, we're more comfortable at work than we are anywhere else. And we should work. But all work and no rest can lead to more stress. And more stress leads to a lower quality of life. There is a real danger in our culture. There's a real danger for the American culture that when our productivity becomes more important than us taking rest and peace, health issues arise. Relationship issues arise. Spiritual issues arise. They tell us, doctors tell us that most of the health issues that people have that they come into the doctor with are stress-related. Stress causes health problems. More work means less time with my loved ones. More work means less time for hobbies and friends. Less time to manage our homes and our finances. Less time for the good stuff of life. All work with no rest leaves our lives out of balance. And work with no rest leaves us restless with life. But here's something that I know about all of us. We kind of like being the most productive people in the world. Because we love our lifestyles. We love our money. We love the things that money buys. We love and want more of the things that we have. Because we've bought into that idea that more makes me happy. And so to have more, we have to work more. And when we work more, we get more. And when we get more, you see the vicious cycle. Then I'll be happy. And so we work more because the more work, the more pay. Now listen, this is important. Don't miss this. Being productive is good. But if we are not careful, people of God, listen, it won't take long before we find ourselves back in Egypt. Chained and enslaved to a social economic culture. A slave to a work system that never rests. A slave to a work system that is ruthless and unforgiving, and is never satisfied, that puts us under the foot of the Egyptian gods. Slaves to a false god of an economy that says more, more, more. We need more. Today, 
I want you to hear the God of the burning bush. The God who comes to us in the middle of our economy and our socioeconomic system, in the middle of the slavery that we've bought into, that says, listen, Pharaoh, let my people go. Let them go. Free them. Because my people will not be a slave to anything. And that's what I want to talk to you today about. Sabbath. I know it's an interesting word, an idea, but it's a commandment, the fourth commandment, to honor the Sabbath, to work six days and rest. But in order for us to understand Sabbath... And in order for us to understand it in the context of the other commandments, in order for us to fully understand what God was doing in the life of his people, I need to give you a little background. So stay with me for a moment. God's people, the Israelites, the the children of God, the children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph— The the God who called Abraham and said, I'm going to bless the world through you. This same people have now been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. It's not a good enslavement, as though any is. They've grown now to about 2 to 3 million people. 400 years they have been forced into a social economic system. A work system that the gods of Egypt and the gods of the area, if you will. There's Canaanite gods and there's, there's Persian gods and there's Assyrian gods. And the gods of Egypt were no different. They do nothing but drive the people for their own glory. Like the gods of Canaan and Assyria and Babylon and Persia, the gods of Egypt were confiscatory. You're like, whoa, okay, what's that mean? I'll explain that. These gods were nothing but takers. They took from the people. They took the very blood, the sweat. They took their work. They took their productivity. And they never gave back to the people. These gods drove them for more, more, more. And everything they produced, these gods confiscated for their own glory. This is Pharaoh. But they were also insatiable, they were never satisfied. No matter how much they produced, there was always more to produce. The endless demands that these gods had for production, they authorized systems of production. They were greedy and unquenchable. More, more, more was never enough because there's always more after more. 
And what are the workers in this insatiable socioeconomic system to produce? Bricks. They made bricks for 400 years. Hundreds of thousands and millions of Hebrew people day in and day out made bricks. More bricks and bricks to build more supply cities in which Pharaoh could store his endless supply of his material wealth. And in Exodus 1.11 we read this. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them. Hoping, now don't go to work next week and call your supervisor a brutal slave driver, okay? That's not the point of this message. Do not do that. Hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pythium and Ramses as supply centers for the king. Bricks. And the system was never ending. There were always more need for more storage cities to generate more need for more bricks. And Pharaoh was this hard-nosed production manager with production schedules that would drive the people to produce more, more, more so he could build more, more, more so he could store more, more, more. If you don't believe me, you can flip over to Exodus chapter 5 and the whole chapter is about brick making. Here's just a few snippets. Pharaoh replied, Moses and Aaron, why are you distracting the people from their tasks? Get them back to work. Next verse. Look, there are many of your people in the land and you are stopping them from their work. Does this sound like we're going somewhere here? Another verse. Do not supply any more straw. Not only was it a production of bricks, but now they're making it hard for them. Make the people get it themselves, but still require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they are crying out, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Next verse. Load them down with more work. Make them sweat. So the slave drivers and foremen went out and told the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not provide any more straw for you. Go get it yourselves. How does that help your work? Now they've got to go get their own materials. Find it wherever you can, but you must produce. And listen, you must produce just as many bricks as before. Meanwhile, the Egyptian slave drivers continued to push hard. Meet your daily quota of bricks. This is all in chapter 5. Then they whipped the Israelite foreman. They had put in charge of the work crews. Why haven't you met your quotas? Either yesterday or today, they demanded. We are given no straw, but the slave drivers still demanded, make bricks. We are being beaten, but it is your fault. Your own people are to blame. But Pharaoh shouted, you're just lazy, lazy. That's why you're saying, let us go and offer sacrifices to the Lord. 
Now get back to work. No straw will be given to you. But listen, but you must still produce the full quota of bricks. One thing is really clear in this system. There ain't nobody taking a day off. No time for Pharaoh. No time for supervisors. No time for taskmasters or slave workers to rest. There is no rest in this endless production of a system. All of life depends on producing bricks. All of life seems to be sustained by their quotas met. Not even the gods rested. In this social economic context, all the different levels of power, the social powers, the religious powers, the gods, the pharaohs, the supervisors, the taskmasters, even the slaves, they're all caught up or enslaved and committed to the grind of endless production. Their lives become restless with stress to produce more and then more, and after they've produced more, then some more. Now listen. It is here, in this context of this socioeconomic system of producing, 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 never resting or having peace. It is here in this socioeconomic context that the God of the burning bush, the God of the burning bush comes crashing into the world of the Hebrew people in a collision course with the system of Pharaoh. The God who hears the desperate cries of the fatigued and the tired and the weary, the restless, those who are overwhelmed with the system. This God comes to these slaves with mercy in the middle of a merciless system. A God who steps into this social economic system that exploits people and he commands a new way of life, a new way to live, a new way to experience life itself. And he looks at Pharaoh and he says, Let my people go. <laughs> they are done with this system. They will not be enslaved by it. They will not be ruled by it. And Pharaoh says no. God, Yahweh, is not a confiscatory or an insatiable God. But he is the great emancipator that Pharaoh could not stand against. And so God recruits Moses. And Moses comes, and over the next several chapters in Exodus, you can read about the Exodus of the Hebrew people. God brings Pharaoh to his knees. God brings him down, low. And he says, fine, 
you can go. Just get out of here. We'll find another way to make bricks. So let's fast forward to Exodus 20. The Ten Commandments are given to us in Exodus chapter 20. The Ten Commandments, listen, they weren't so much a religious document as a socioeconomic document, as a new way of life, as a new way to live, as a new way to set priority up amongst people and their God and people and their neighbor. This contract in this new covenant that God made with the Hebrew people, when he delivered the people from this slavery, from this socioeconomic never-ending system, God sets himself up and says, look, I am the one true God. Worship me. Did the other gods deliver you from your slavery? No, I did. Did the other gods perform miracles and part the Red Sea? No, I did. I am your God. There's the first three commandments. But then he comes to the fourth one. And it's only in the context of the Exodus that you realize the Ten Commandments is an Exodus document. It's not so much being delivered from a land to another land, but it's a delivery from a way of life to a whole new way of life. A whole new way to experience God and to experience their neighbor. They're leaving one system and moving into a new system that God is giving them. They are no longer slaves, but now they are children of God. They're no longer in slavery, but they are now in covenant relationship with God. They are no longer just a commodity to be used and abused for someone else's gain. But now, they are in relationship to God and to each other. The most important thing in life now does not become their productivity but their relationships and our fourth commandment is this remember to observe the sabbath day by keeping it holy set it apart that's what holy means Carve it out. Get your calendar out and say, this is the day that I rest. You have six days, each of you, to work for ordinary work. Next verse. But the seventh day is the Sabbath day of rest, dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes your, you, your sons, your daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, or any foreigners living among you. For in six days, and now, now why is this important? Why should they do this? Why is God, he, the first three commandments, he says, okay, I am the only God, worship only me, you know, don't have idols, uh, don't take my name in vain, here's your relationship to God, and then over here, these are your relationships, don't steal, don't cheat, don't commit adultery, these are your relationships to your neighbor, 
And right in the middle of your relationship to God and your relationship to your neighbor is what Walter Brueggemann in a book called Sabbath as Resistance says is the bridge between the two. The Sabbath commandment is the bridge between our relationship to God and our relationship with each other. In other words, if you ain't keeping Sabbath, you ain't got a good relationship with God and you ain't got a good relationship with others. It is a weird commandment. You say, well, but it's part of the commandments about God. This is about God. No, it's not just about God. Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a commandment that bridges your relationship to your God and your relationship to your neighbor. The Sabbath commandment is part of the Exodus story. When you look at the context in which the people of Israel lived, can you hear the God is giving us a day off. Can you you see the burden of the pressure and the stress of of production just go off their backs? You rest. Listen. Because I'm not a confiscatory God and I'm not an insatiable God. I'm a restful God. For six days the Lord made the heavens and earth, the sea and everything in them. But on the seventh day, he rested. What kind of a God takes a day off? A good God. A restful God. A God who understands that in all things there needs to be balance between work and rest. Between my relationship with God and my relationship with each other. with with the other person in my life. And that bridge is Sabbath. Exodus is not just about leaving one land for another. Exodus is about deliverance from a way of life into a whole new freedom, a whole new way to experience life. The Ten Commandments in the context of Exodus tell us that God is different than the gods of Egypt. That God, unlike the gods of the slave, this God should not be confused or even thought equal to an insatiable God of productivity. That that those gods use people, abuse people, and enslave people. They lie to people for their own glory. But Yahweh, Yahweh is nothing like that. He is a God who reveals mercy and steadfast love and faithfulness and get this and rest Yahweh is committed to the relationship not the commodity not just more bricks even better he's a God who rests and takes a day off listen there's three things that you need to understand about God one is this 
God is not a workaholic. And neither should you be. And neither should I be. God is not a workaholic. Second, God is not anxious about the full functioning of creation. Restlessness and worry, it's not in his nature. And he doesn't want it to be in ours. We need to be restful instead of restless. We need to trust. Can you imagine a God that created all things and sustains all things? And I'm not just talking about here on earth, but the whole universe. Can you imagine the things going on in this world and all around? And yet this God takes a day to rest. He's not anxious about it. He's not anxious about the functioning of creation. But he's also not arrogant. You say, well, what do you, how does arrogance have to play with all this? Well, arrogance is kind of God saying, well, the well-being of the creation depends on my endless work. This is for those of us who work all the time. Listen, the world will continue on if you take a day off. Your work will still be there. You're not that important. This is a hard one for me. Those of you that know me, I would just rather work. I love working. But it's arrogant to think that somehow my job, my company, my family, whatever it is that you work for, will not sustain and be there if I'm not constantly producing in that context. God is not arrogant. He knows that the well-being of creation will continue on. He's got this. So how do we apply this to our lives? I know I need to wrap up. Many of us live unbalanced lives. I do. You do. And we know it. We know it from the stress in our life. We know it from the restlessness in our life. Our productivity is more important than our rest. Vacation time goes unused. Family time goes underutilized. Worship time is neglected. And as a result, our lives end up unbalanced. We end up unbalanced. The key to finding balance in life, to having a well-ordered life, one that is not anxious and worrisome, one that is not arrogant and thinks everything revolves on what I do, the key to finding that balance is to follow the pattern that God has laid out when he created the heavens and the earth. He worked six days and then he rested. To follow that pattern that he established in the fourth commandment to a people who were so ingrained in the context of a social economic system that never took a day off. So that they could focus on their God and their neighbor instead of what they can produce.
the key to finding that is to take a day of rest. It gives balance to your life and it gives meaning to your time. Sabbath rest is this acknowledgement. When I carve out that day and I say, this is the day that I will Sabbath, that I will rest, we acknowledge that God and God's people in the world are not commodities to be used. We are not enslaved to our work. We are not enslaved to an endless production of a socioeconomic system that says more, more, more is better. But we step back from that. A system that believes more is best is wrong. Rather, we are now subjects in an economy of relationship where production is not the most important thing, but God is and my neighbor is. To take time to play and rest and connect. Sabbath rest is this acknowledgement that we are not subjects of this other economy, but an economy of relationship. Rest helps us refocus on what's most important. Sabbath is an act of trust and submission. We cease our work by trusting God will provide what we need. And we submit to a restful God who loves us and wants us to be whole and wants us to be complete and wants us to be connected to one another and wants relationship with us. Sabbath will redefine your life. We no longer live for just production and consumption, but now we are defined by our relationships. And here's the challenge. Sabbath is resistance. Because here's the truth. You are still going to live in this socioeconomic system. You are still going to live in this production-only system. You still are going to work in it. You still are going to get up and go to your jobs. You are not going to be able to remove yourselves completely from the culture. But when you take a Sabbath, and when I take a Sabbath, we are entering into a time of resistance to what the gods of this world would want for us. A resistance to an economy that demands more. Resist the pressure to conform. Resist the temptation to think that more is better. Resist the idea that your productivity is more important than rest. Establish a day of the week that you honor, that you set it aside. Resist the pressure to produce anything that day. Do nothing. And don't feel guilty for being lazy. (laughs) Budget your time. Don't overcommit yourself. Learn to say no. Find that rhythm of life that God created in creation. The six days on and the one day off. 
Remember, Sabbath is God's gift to you. Sabbath is God's gift to you. It's a gift. It is not a command that you must keep. It is not just a rule that you can't break. It was made for you. It's a gift. Use it. Take it. And be balanced and refreshed and renewed. Sabbath is an, attitude, is an antidote to worldliness. Here's the bottom line for you today. And then we're going to take communion. More will be less unless you rest. More will be less unless you rest. And the reason you're having relationship issues and the reason you're having stress issues and the reason you're having all these issues in your life might simply be because you're not stepping back and rebalancing and recentering your life on what's really important. Your relationship to your God and your relationship to your neighbor. So we're going to take communion this morning. And I thought, you know, how does the communion table fit into Sabbath? And I thought to myself, it takes a lot of work to prepare a meal. How many of you spend hours on your Thanksgiving dinners? The rest of you, your dinners are no good. (laughs) How many of you, by the end of the day, are just so wore out because you've been preparing? You know, I thought about Martha and Mary and Jesus coming to their house, and, and, and one gets really upset because she's in there working, and she's producing, and she's getting the dinner ready, and, and the other one's just sitting at the feet of Jesus, and and, and those of us that are like, you know, the Marthas are like, yeah, somebody's got to make the dinner, man. I mean, Jesus, yeah, you're right. She's doing the better thing, but you'll go hungry if I don't, you know, do this over here. And those of you that are like the, you know, like just sitting at the feet of Jesus and we're the people who are over there fixing dinner, you're like, yeah, but I'm doing the better thing, right? Yeah, but you'll starve to death doing that, right? Making a dinner is a lot of work. This table... You don't have to do a thing to set it. It's been made. Jesus provides the meal. Jesus satisfies our hunger. Jesus makes us full, refreshed, renewed, and rested. And here's the thing. I didn't have to do a thing. This is kind of like a day of rest. And yet I still get to eat without running through McDonald's. And what you eat, we do it in remembrance of him. He laid down his life for us. He gave it for us. He did the work. He did the suffering and, and, and spent the time. And he made this table. And here's the thing. He invites everyone to come. And maybe you're here today and you're not a believer and you're not a Christian. This is a great time for you to believe that Jesus 
saves us by the work of his cross and his resurrection. And we eat this dinner in remembrance because he said it for us and gave it to us. And he said, do this. His body is the bread and his blood is the wine. And if you don't believe, but this is a great day to believe. And if you've been distant and you've been just crazy and you've been disconnected, this is a great moment and opportunity to just step back and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm going to take better use of my time. I'm going to take a day because I know you gave it to me. I don't want to go back to Egypt. I don't want to be enslaved in that system. I want to be free and well and balanced and full. This is a great time as we remember what Jesus has done for us. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and we're going to come. Here's how we do this if you've not been here before. You come to the center, and then you come down. Now, I want to warn you. um, Yes, we're working on this, but it's not been fixed yet. Um, There is a leak in the roof. And for some strange reason, it's right in the middle of right there. If You've been hearing it hit, haven't you? I've been hearing it hit. It's just like... And if you want to, you know, like try to miss it, you can. If you want to play chicken with it, you can. I don't care what you do. Just know that there's a wet spot right there, and you might get hit with some water. I apologize for that. Um, maybe the board members will be like, yeah, we got to get that. Yeah, no, they're on it. They're, they're trying to find somebody that will get up on top of that roof and fix it in the winter. But... Uh, Come down. You're going to come down to the middle. Come down. Take your food while they sing this incredible song about communion for us. And then we'll partake and then we'll dismiss you, okay? So let's 